Why is it so rare to feel that feeling of a, quote, perfect day? Have you wondered that? We certainly enjoy so many beautiful moments, momentous achievements, breakthroughs and wonder, but also, and so often, it feels incomplete. It just doesn't last. Something is off. Maybe we feel dissatisfaction or insecurity or perhaps an interaction with a family member, a friend, or a colleague wasn't all we had hoped or expected it would be. We watch the news and feel heavy about all that is not just off, but obviously really broken. Perfect, complete, whole, that, quote, design for good we talked about last week is the longing we feel inside that is so rarely our consistent experience. What happened? What changed? Today, we'll look at the answer to that question by looking at the stories and main idea of Genesis 3 to 11, or box two uh, in our series, God's True Story, the damage by evil part that moves us from box one, designed for good, to damaged by evil, the box we're talking about today, to the next box restored for better, and ultimately the last box sent together to heal. Our journey will be a bit like riding a downward spiral. Think of a like image of a tornado and just moving down through it. As we walk through a series of narratives that show this spiral of evil, we will see this one main idea play out. And here's what it is. By creatures failing to trust our creator God and be who we are called to be, evil and brokenness entered the world and infiltrated every level of life and relationship. Even so, the creature's failure can never thwart the creator's purposeful plan. Let me say that again a different way since this is the heart of what we're talking about today. By humans and spirits failing to trust our creator God and be who we are called to be, evil and brokenness entered the world and did infiltrate all levels of life and and relationship that downward spiral we mentioned at the beginning. Yet, even early in the story of the Bible, we see that the failure of us as creatures can never thwart the Creator's purposeful plan. Even the image of a tornado, imagine it. It has, uh, imagine if there were stars and glimmers of light in it, um, which we'll highlight in the message to come. We, were gonna, we are going to enter in, and we're going to feel that full weight of the damage of evil in today's message. But in the end, we will remember and worship today because evil will never have the final word. Now, because I'm a Bible nerd, and we at Vineyard Croningen love the Bible, I'd like us to see this idea play out by doing a quick run through these chapters. The structure of the chapters themselves is so incredible, as the themes of the stories repeat and show where the heart of the message truly lies. It's hard to imagine without seeing an image, but I'd like you to imagine Genesis 1 creation matching with the new creation after Noah in Genesis 9, and kind of like a repeat of the scenes in the Garden of Eden uh, repeating after the flood. Also, the divisions of the sons uh, with Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, matching with Noah's sons in Genesis 9, and the son of God rebellion in Genesis 6, matching with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, with the flood narrative at the center of it all. 
Now, more will be said about this later in the message. I know it's a lot of info and may be hard to imagine, but think of it like this. Imagine like two repeated mirroring falls, like upside down stairs is a way I like to think of it, with kind of like this bubble that's the center. It's like a hope-filled center. Um, things will start well, essentially, in Genesis 1 and 2 creation, and in that post-flood new creation after Noah comes out of the boat. But in both instances, uh, it gets gross at the stories play out. In the center of the flood narrative where evil culminates, we also see mercy and hope spring anew. And throughout, you will see sprinkled that uh, God is the merciful and sovereign creator who will fulfill his purposes. For now... Uh, if you have a physical Bible with you, please open it and follow along. If you have a digital one, please feel free to do the same. It's always good to check out the words of the stories themselves. Now, as we start, uh, we need to remember one main point from last week. It's hard to re realize how far we have fallen and how damaged by evil we are without remembering the exalted status we were created for. Kuhn walked us through Genesis 1 and 2 and how God designed the world for good. One key command from God, the first in all of Scripture, was given in Genesis 1, 26-28, and it said this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now you have to know what something was designed for to be able to judge if it works or not. These verses reveal that we were created to rule on the earth, to be blessed, to multiply the beauty and abundance of Eden out over the whole creation from a place of a loving and trusting relationship with the Creator God. This is what it means when God says in these verses that He created humans in His image. Christopher Wright, a Bible scholar, puts it this way, quote, The expression in our image describes the way God made us, not a quality we possess. The image of God is not something we have. It is what we are. To be human is to be the image of the creator. It is not an extra added on to our species. It is definitive of what it means to be human. End quote. Imagine this for a second. To be an image bearer in Eden was a life of intimacy with God, a self-image with no doubt or shame. Connections with others completely unmarred by any evil, power to resist the schemes of Satan, and purposeful work that succeeded. It's simply stunning to imagine. It's an experience of humanity we've only tasted, but never lived in full. But there was one condition to this experience of full humanity, of image-bearing, and that is where our message today begins. In Genesis 2, 16-17, God said this, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Trusting God is the condition for humanity to fully live as we were designed to be. One, one commentator said that the essence of sin is to put human judgment above divine command. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil thus represented a choice. Would com- humanity continue to allow God to be the definer of what is good? Now remember all that repetition of the word good in Genesis 1. Or would we seize the opportunity to define it for ourselves? In Genesis 3, a serpent comes to Eve, the first woman, and tempts her to question God's command by asking her this, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This serpent, identified later in scripture as Satan, goes on to flagrantly counter God's word and tempt her with the line, You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Ironically and tragedy, tragically, this very temptation lies at the heart of how the world has been damaged by evil. Eve and Adam were already like God. They were the divine image bearers and did not need anything but trust in God to live in this exalted and undeserved way. To put what I said uh, another way, the point the story is making can be summed up in a comparative Imagine the truth of God versus the lie of Satan. The truth of God says humans image God when they trust God's wisdom to define good and evil. It's what we already are doing. It's what he has called us to be. Yet the lie of Satan says humans become gods when they define good and evil by their own wisdom. It's something you must attain. So Eve did what all humans, including us sitting here today, have done since. She failed to trust God, and her husband, Adam, likewise ate the fruit of the tree with her. They gave into the temptation before them. They decided for themselves what is, quote, good. This is where the damage of evil began. The consequences are immediate. Notice just a few when you're thinking through the text of Genesis 3, 7 to 8. It says the eyes of both of them were opened. It says they knew they were naked. It says that they even hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. It goes on to talk about how they felt fear of God's presence, describe how they immediately start blaming each other and the serpent for their indiscretion, and it lists the forthcoming experience of pain as a consequence of this singular decision. In other words, the damage of their sinful choice brought the loss of innocence and the loss of a peace-filled sense of self. Guys, our identity struggles today all stem from this singular moment. This decision also resulted in a fracturing of their relationship with each other, that shame we highlighted in the verses before. It resulted in fear and hiding from God, physical pain and toil in their work on earth, and ultimately separation from the presence of God in physical death. This one choice wrought damage to relationship at every single level. It destroyed, in some sense, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, our relationship with the created world, and our relationship with God. At this moment, our very identity as the image bearers of God was shattered 
as we begin to disconnect for the one from the one who gives meaning to our lives. Whew. Man, but praise be to God. Even from the very beginning, creatures can never ruin the Creator's purposeful plan. Remember the glimmers of hope I mentioned uh, at the beginning that we would see throughout the story? Well, in verse 15, the first one of those comes about as God is judging and cursing Satan for deceiving the humans. He says this to him. I will put enmity, verse 15 of Genesis 3, between you and the woman. Enmity is just like a fight, a strife. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This incredible verse is called the Proto-Euangelion, or the, quote, first good news by many Bible scholars. If your Bible has the little footnotes or cross-references in this verse, check them out after the service to see how this is fulfilled in the Bible. In short, God here prophesies and promises an ongoing battle between the defendants, descendants of Eve, humanity, and those of Satan. A he, unidentified he, shall come from Eve, and though struck by Satan, this he will crush or defeat Satan once and for all. I wonder who this might be. Now, though this promise remains, the fulfillment is still in the future, and Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden and away from the presence of the Lord and the tree of life. Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. This story is a tragic repeat of the temptation and fall of their parents and highlights particularly the fracture evil causes in our relationships with one another. Not only that, it ramps up or in our image of the tornado kind of going down, rather down that level of evil. In the story before, Adam and Eve had to be persuaded to sin. In this story, Cain could not be dissuaded from sinning, even by God himself. The story says that both sons brought an offering of worship to God. For reasons that aren't mentioned, God was pleased with the offering of Abel, but not with Cain's, and this made Cain angry and ashamed. God speaks to Cain in the place of his emotions and invites him back to humanity's true identity, a purposeful place in creation from a posture of trust in God. See what God says in Genesis 4, 6-7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you, Cain, must rule over it. Just like Eve, Cain had the choice to trust God, and in so doing, rule over and stand against the temptation of Satan and sin, embodied in this verse like an animal waiting to pounce, just like the snake was waiting on Eve. Like his mother, Cain did what was right in his own eyes and murdered his brother in rage. Cain, like Eve, is banished from the presence of God. Again, we see sin and evil damaging humanity's relationship with God and with each other. Furthermore, a curse is given in man's relationship to the earth. But notice, again, God introduces a glimmer of hope and mercy. Cain cries out that the consequences are more than he can bear. I mean, this is ridiculously audacious, everyone. 
This guy just murdered his brother and showed no remorse when confronted about it. Yet he asks for mercy. And even to one like Cain, God shows mercy in response to prayer. In 4.15, it talks about a mark God puts on Cain. And it seems somewhat similar, like the clothing that was given to Adam and Eve in 3.21. We don't exactly know what the mark is, but at minimum, it is a form of protection. The covering of clothing provided in Genesis 3, and potentially this mark here as well, is a glimmer of hope in that it hints at the provision of a covering and of protection God would later provide in history. The rest of chapter 4 is a genealogy. Basically, a family tree from a common ancestor. And for our purposes today, imagine the point on that downward spiral of evil sliding down a few more notches in this genealogy with the kids of Cain. Basically, it says that Cain built a city in which his descendant, Lamech, is shown to be even more murderous and vengeful than Cain. Not good. He marries two wives, which is a move from monogamy and marriage, God's design in Genesis 2, to bigamy also not good. And he's described as having this like crazy, bloodthirsty lust for vengeance. He even killed and bragged about it. Society seems to be disintegrating. Chapter five is another genealogy. While we might be tempted to skip these in our Bible reading or our overview today, we see that God has placed them there for a purpose. Three quick notable things are given in chapter five's genealogy. First, the repeated phrase, he died, emphasizes the fulfillment of God's promise that sin will result in death. It's in that chapter a lot and just shows again that death is now reigning over humanity as a result of evil and sin. Second, it talks about a guy named Enoch and it says that he walked with God. This reminds us that even in a spiral of evil, that ideal of walking with God is still possible. And third and lastly, most importantly, the genealogy in chapter four, the one before this, ended in evil. But this one in chapter five starts with Adam and Eve's other son, Seth, and ends with the birth of Noah, whose story we will see later is the seedbed for redemptive hope. Now, as we continue to see evil spiral out of control and spread in the world, Genesis 6 tells a super interesting story highlighting the spread of evil in and by the spiritual realm. This chapter talks about the sons of God, seeing that the daughters of man, aka human females, are attractive. Now, this is a super tricky story to interpret, but I will say that I believe the sons of God are falling, fallen angels or demons who rebelled along with Satan, as this phrase is used in other parts of the Bible to talk about spiritual beings. Now, these sons of God somehow had physical relations with human women and bore children, increasing the corruption on the earth. Pause for a second. This is kind of strange, right? It's hard to wrap our minds around. Now, Jude 6 talks about this and helps us understand a bit when he says this. Verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I believe that the sons of God, here called angels by Jude, broke the boundary of authority God had set 
and they craved for more. Like Eve determined good for herself, the spiritual forces did likewise. In the Gospels, we see something parallel when we see demons actually craving human bodies. It is not their domain, yet they yearn, yearn for it and they wreak devastating consequences on those they possess. These sons of God here in Genesis 6 seem to have hungered here for a sexual experience which was contrary to God's design. While we've seen so far in these chapters humanity's rebellion against trusting God, here, in essence, we are given an insight into the spiritual rebellion that takes that same form. Humans and spiritual beings alike fail to trust God, and moreover, rebellious spiritual beings tempt humans into more and more evil. The result is all this evil just pouring in to God's good creation. And what is God's response to all of this? Verse 5 in chapter 6 says this, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a real low point. Stop and imagine this for a second. It's like as if, as if everything you'd planned for goes entirely wrong, but multiplied by like a billion. <laughs> like, how devastating would that feel for you? How devastating must this have felt for God? The story of Noah follows this and is where the consequences of the damage done by evil take their greatest effect. To this point, we've seen evil wreak havoc on self-image, relationships with each other and God, and even the spiritual order. And in response, the creator God brings judgment in the form of a flood. Now, I don't want you to think of this so much like God choosing some arbitrary judgment against human evil, but rather as God removing his creative and merciful hand from his creation. Now, remember that structure outline we talked through at the beginning? We've fallen from the Edenic creation ideal to a judgment of decreation brought about by human sin. Remember, in Genesis 1-2, creation was like watery chaos. And in verse 3, God speaks, and this is the beginning of creating an inhabitable place for humanity filled with land, seas, creatures, the like. So watery chaos was the pre-creation form, if you will. Now, more on this to come, but let's return to Noah's story. I know this is famous in children's Bibles and one we may likely be familiar with. But to recap, God determines to wipe out the creation that is damaged by evil, but one man, a guy named Noah, finds favor in God's eyes. Now God tells Noah his plan, and he instructs him to build an ark, like a big boat, and go into it with his family and pairs of every living thing. With them, the, ark, the earth will be repopulated after the judgment. And here's the huge difference from the stories we've seen so far. It says in 7 verse 5 that Noah obeys all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah finally trusts God. We see something good. On the day the rains began, the whole crew, family, animals, and the like, go into the boat and catch this detail in verse 16. The Lord shut him in. God closes the door behind them. He protects the seedbed of people and creatures through whom his design to fill the earth with his presence would later be fulfilled. 
The rain lasts 40 days and 40 nights, and the consequence of that much water lasted much longer. Hey, all of us who lived in the Netherlands, we know that the day the rains end doesn't mean that the waters go down. It often can take time after a flood, and that was true for Noah and the animals. So as they are waiting in the boat for the waters to go down, chapter 8 of Genesis begins with yet another one of those glimmers of mercy or hope that we've talked about. It says in verse 1 that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The story of Noah arrives at a place seemingly similar to the story started in Genesis 1 and 2. In the outline we've been considering, God's remembering is joined by God saving Noah and the creatures to begin anew with his creation project. In the structure of these chapters in Genesis, imagine this part of the story as like the starting over point. There's hope and it's incredible. Now, God sends a wind to begin that process of the new creation. Reminds us of Genesis 1. The waters subside from the earth and Noah and all the animals go out and God commands them something very similar to what we've already heard. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Noah worships God by offering a sacrifice and God covenants to never again curse the ground because of man. AKA there would never be another near complete destruction of creation. And God gave the rainbow as a reminder of this merciful promise. God blesses Noah and his sons, and he says the same thing he'd said to Adam and Eve in 9 verse 1, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. We've arrived at a point where the new human race, headed by a new Adam named Noah, has arrived in a good garden once again. The hope of new creation, if at least for a moment, is here. But as we've already seen uh, just this early introduction into the Bible, hope is tragically fleeting. Noah plants a vineyard towards the end of chapter 9, and this reminds us of the garden in Genesis 3, but instead of using the fruit of the garden for good, Noah repeats Adam and Eve's fall. He gets drunk on the wine of his vineyard, and like Adam and Eve, ends up naked. I have to say, this point in the story makes me want to, like, insert a million of those, like, hand-over-your-face emojis. Like, just plaster the Bible with it. Like, what were you doing? <laughs> Ugh. Gets worse, though. Noah's son, Ham, sees his dad's nakedness and tells his two brothers about it. While this is open to a variety of imp- interpretations, at a minimum, it was a son seeing his father's failings and then gossiping about it. Now, what's the big deal with that? It's big because the Bible takes honoring your father and mother super seriously. It's later one of the Ten Commandments. And Ham here had shamed his father publicly. Now, just as eating the fruit resulted in death for Adam and Eve, failure to honor his father resulted in a curse. The point here that we must always remember is that sin is serious. The The result was not only a curse, but like Cain and Abel, Division among brothers. More matching things are happening. Now, chapter 10 is another genealogy. And I think you're at this point wondering, my gosh, Katie, when are you going to stop talking about genealogies? Now, this is the last one, but I promise they're super interesting. That's why I'm bringing them up. Like the one in chapter 4 ended with Cain, Lamech, and lots of evil, this one highlights the cities of Babylon and Assyria. 
two future mortal enemies of God's people. Babylon later in the Bible would become the prototype of the kingdom of the world that is bent against the kingdom of God. If you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, it's like that first time you read about Mount Doom. The name, both in meaning and in what it is later associated with, becomes synonymous with the place that fights against all that is good. We talked about this a lot in our Revelation series. The mention of these nations here foreshadows the multiplication of evil. The spiral is going down again, hard and fast. And the low point, the final point of chapter 11, is where we'll finish today's journey. Chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. In the story, it says that humans had one shared language. Now I have to ask, has anyone else tried to learn Dutch or another language and remember or thinks or feels right now? How hard that was or is? <laughs> How great would one world language have been, right? Anyway, contrary to God's command to multiply and fill the earth, the people in Babel decide to settle in one place, build a city, and construct a tower together to make their name great. Now, they are clearly wanting to define what is good for themselves and do so in contrast to what God had ser seriously and clearly commanded. Now, this is the lowest point in our journey so far as it is the most brazen culmination of a challenge to God's supremacy. It's a human rebellion that likely has the sons of God or a spiritual rebellion behind it. Where do I get the idea of spiritual rebellion here? Now, I don't have time to unpack it all, but later in scripture, we are given a picture of the spiritual beings that ruled with God, Satan included, having rebelled. We've already seen an example of this in chapter six. When exactly that initial fall of spiritual beings happened is unclear, but what is more clear is that these spiritual beings are totally corrupt, and they work to lead nations and people astray from God. Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 uh, says this and gives us some insight into kind of what I'm unpacking here. It says this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Verse 8 refers to this division of mankind at Babel. In essence, man's choice to listen to the lies of the sons of God results in their being led astray and handed over to these corrupt spiritual beings when, please do not forget, God called humans to rule. Humans and spirits alike rebel, yet God intervenes to carry out his plan. Just as he has done throughout the story so far, God acts. He stoops down to see their little tower and to prevent their further rebellion. He confuses their language so that they do not understand each other, and they have to spread out. In so doing, God fulfills his own command. In total, the damage we've seen in the downward spiral of evil in these chapters is super immense. To recap, human self-understanding, relationships with one another, relationships with creation, Relationships with the spiritual realm and relationships with God have all been devastated by sin. If the pattern of these chapters were to continue, a final and ultimate act of judgment, a final decreation by God would be fitting. It would actually even fit the structure of Genesis. The story would end at Genesis 11. We wouldn't be sitting here. Mercifully, and boy, do I love when there is a quote-unquote but in an otherwise tragic story, God begins his story of redemption here by offering a glimmer of hope. 
that genealogy of chapter 11. Yeah, 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 genealogies. But here's why it's important. The genealogy of chapter 11 mirrors the genealogy of chapter 5, the one that ended with Noah. And this time it ends with a man named Abram. Covenant, salvation, and new creation started with Noah. And with Abram, we'll see that the story is not over. Evil will not prevail. The seedbed of redemptive hope that we'll explore in the coming weeks is given right here in this one person. Now, as we close and turn to consider what to take away from the story, I'd like to conclude with one final thought and a few paths to response. Now, for the spoiler alert that is the reason we gather here at church today. The offspring of Eve has come. He reigns, and his name is Jesus Christ. The one born of a virgin in Bethlehem, unlike Eve, trusted the wisdom of his father completely, lived as the image bearer humanity was created to be, and humbled himself to even trust his father unto death. This Jesus was tempted by Satan and his dominions, but he ruled over their temptation in perfect trust. And though struck even unto death on a cross, he rose up from the grave and crushed the head of the curse that has held humanity in bondage from the beginning. Jesus, our King, is the better brother than Cain, authoritative voice at which demons tremble, the one who covers our shame, removes our fear, and will ultimately bring a kingdom that destroys Babylon and restores the right relationships of humanity with ourselves, each other, the world, and him. The damage of evil is not the final word of the God of the universe. The final word of the God of the universe is the finished work of God's Son, King Jesus. Amen and amen. As a result... We must respond to this part of the story and this spoiler alert conclusion to it. Here are some ideas on how to do that. First, we must worship. Genesis 3 to 11 is a crushing blow to any thoughts we have towards self-reliance. These aren't just stories, but are realities we have all experienced in some shape or form. No matter how hard we try, we are damaged by evil and we cannot escape it. In fact, you may have examples coming to mind at this very moment of how you're personally impacted by sin, whether from within or done against you. Maybe you feel the resultant shame, fear, or isolation even now. Like the characters in these stories, we must trust the voice of God whose ways are higher than ours. We must return to the exalted identity he designed us for and worship him because he awaits to show mercy even when our sins are piled as high as the heavens. Worship is not simply a song we sing on Sunday, but the act of obeying and pursuing the God of the universe. Are you feeling weighed down by evil today? Worship him. Turn to him. Trust him. Repent of sin. Cry out for justice for the sin done against you. Hold on to who he is and what he says, even when it doesn't make sense. Through Christ, the new and better Adam, we have been redeemed and have the help of the Holy Spirit to resist evil and do good in the world. Second, and lastly, we must tell others the true story of why the world is damaged by evil. When people talk with you this week about any and all measures of struggle they've experienced personally or relationally, or are noticing on the world stage, consider it your opportunity to share. Pray for God to make you ready to share and ask him to give you wisdom as to the 
how-to, if you will, of such a conversation. The challenge is just to somehow talk about how the world was designed for good, but has been damaged by evil. Share what you can recall from the sermons the last two weeks, or better yet, what you yourself know from the scripture. Share this big story or share parts of it, whatever you feel you are able to do. The world must understand the source of evil in order to rightly walk the path towards truly confronting and overcoming it. Amen.